following podcast is sponsored in part by the Blue Ridge Institute for Theological Education and Birmingham Theological Seminary. For more information about these institutions, please visit their websites at bright-va.org. That's B-R-I-T-E-V-A.org or bts.education. And now, here is Larger for Life, a podcast on the Westminster Larger Catechism. There's only one characteristic of Almighty God that is communicated in the superlative degree from the mouths of angels, where the Bible doesn't simply say that God is holy, or even that He's holy, holy, but that He is holy, holy, holy. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. Indeed, welcome back, friends, to this episode of Larger for Life. We are glad to have you joining us here today. My name is Sean Morris, and I'm joined here today with my co-laborers and co-hosts and co-conspirators. We're here with Derek Bright and Matt Adams and Nick Bullock. And our brother, Stephen Spinnenweber, has been uh, providentially hindered from joining us this fine day. So we're thinking of him and we're sad that he's not able to be with us, but we'll, we'll look forward to having him join us next time. You heard that lead in, I hope, friends, from that YouTube clip of a, 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 a portion of a wonderful lecture years ago given by the late R.C. Sproul, Dr. R.C. Sproul, as he's speaking about the holiness of God. And we are coming up today to larger catechism question number seven, where we consider what is God? And of course, there's lots of attributes that we're going to work our way through, not just his holiness, but all sorts of other things as well. But we thought that that was just a wonderful segue to frame our minds around as we're thinking about the incomprehensibility and beauty and splendor and majesty of this almighty God. So as we jump into our discussion this morning, let me turn our attention to question number Seven, and we'll see how far we get. You know, we heard that clip from Doctor Sproul about God's holiness, but that adjective comes in the latter third of this catechism question. We may not get that far in this particular episode. We may have to subdivide question seven into several episodes, and that's okay because this is a huge subject that we're thinking about. What is God? Uh, and the fact that the divines were able to reduce it into the the succinct question that they did here in question number seven is a feat in and of itself. There's certainly much more that could be said. So we'll we'll make our way through it. We're not in any particular rush. We hope that this these episodes as we discuss and unpack question seven will be edifying to all who listen along. And let's see where the conversation takes us. So let me read the question and then I'll turn it over to my friend Nick Bullock as he gets the discussion uh, rolling here for us this morning. Question number seven, what is God? Answer, God is a spirit in and of himself, infinite in being, glory, blessedness, and perfection, all-sufficient, eternal, unchangeable, incomprehensible, everywhere present, almighty, knowing all things, most wise, most holy, most just, most merciful and gracious, long-suffering, and abundant in goodness and truth. Nick, kick us off, brother. Well, whenever we come to the answer that the divines give us, the first thing that they say is that God is a spirit. And the cited verse that they give us is John 4, 24. God is a spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And when we come to this, there is something to look at. And, and Voss, whenever he writes his 
his uh, larger catechism commentary, he points out that they say specifically that God is a spirit rather than spirit or spiritual. And there is a distinction there that I think could be very useful for us today uh, whenever we think about the God of the Bible, Um, particularly that God is a spirit in the class of beings that are spiritual. He's not the only spirit that there is. However, he is a spirit. And that describes for us who he is. He's, at least in the first sense, transcendent because of his spiritual person. But he's distinctly transcendent. He's not just an abstract ideal or an immaterial force. Now, when we talk about spirituality or spiritual things today, I mean, when you talk to anyone, whether it's on the street or sometimes even within the church, they talk about being spiritual or spirits, and and it's an abstract ideal. Sometimes it's this inner unction, it's this cold or hot feeling, it's the hair rising on the back of your neck, and that's not at all what the divines are speaking about. They're talking about a transcendent person in the person of God. Okay, this is unique, it's distinct, however, it's different than who we are. Uh, We are spiritual beings, we have souls that are spiritual, however, we are likewise physical. Uh, But when we talk about God, we're talking about someone who's knowable yet different. He's transcendent. He's not controlled by the material universe that he created. He's above it, beyond it, uh, yet still able to exist and uh, function within it. Uh, And that that really is a a specific uh, thing to point out. And one of the things that Voss points to uh, that we as American Christians, those of you who are American and are listening, uh, we ought to be on our toes about this because one of the few, uh, I guess I could say few, native uh, religions to the United States would be Mormonism. And their conception of God is not as a spirit, uh, but rather a God who is bound to materiality. And uh, that's an entirely different view of God. And and likewise, this would go over toward uh, other religions, whether they uh, would be sort of a um, a paganism or a panentheism. Uh, those would consider God not necessarily as bound to material, though they may well do that, um, but they generally would consider God as spiritual in the abstract, mm-hmm. uh, just a transcendent ideal rather than a specific spirit in his being. And so, yeah, I kind of leave it there and let some of the other guys uh, kick that around a little bit. That's a that's a great point, Nick, and I'll just share a short anecdote and I'll let some of the other fellows say something of more substance. But I think you're right. Uh, Americans and the American culture has this perception of God that's m- more akin to something from Star Wars than the God of the Scripture. Uh, when we were in seminary in Mississippi, I was sitting there in the dentist office in Clinton, Mississippi, in the waiting room, and you know, guy nearby, he struck up a conversation with me, and you know, what do you do? What do you do? And Oh well, you know. I said, well, "What do you do?" Well, I'm I'm a seminary student. What's that? Well, I'm 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 studying to be a a Presbyterian minister, and he got visibly kind of uncomfortable, and he said, "Well, you know, there's lots of ideas about God out there, but I, I like to think that that God is, you know, this kind of the life force that binds all things together and sustains life and sustains energy, and it's the bond of goodwill uh, amongst people." He says something along those lines, and and you know, I, I was a young 20 something and he was an older gentleman and I was going to be polite and and just oh well that's interesting but then he made the fatal mistake of asking the seminarian but what do you think I said, well <laughs> i hadn't i hadn't 
you know, really studied the larger catechism, but I had studied the shorter catechism and I'm not good at thinking on my feet. So I just gave him that shorter catechism answer. I said, well, sir, God is a spirit, infinite, eternal and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness and truth. Uh, that man suddenly became very fascinated with his shoes and was quite, quite relieved uh, when the when the hygienist called him back away from my company. But um, the catechism question here, both shorter and larger, is very uh, I don't know if confrontational is the right word, but it's profound because it does confront us in that it, you know, because we have this agnostic attitude in our culture these days. What is God? Well, who can know? Who could say what God is? And a catechism comes along and says, well. The God of the Bible says who he is, and the Bible has revealed who he is, and here's who he is. Here's who we can say, because scripture has said this is who and what God is, but really more properly who God is. So what a what a wonderful tool the catechism gives us to confront this sort of spiritual agnostic uncertainty of our age. Matt, what do you think? Yeah, I, you know, I think you bring up a, a really good point of not not only knowing that our God is a spirit, but we have his word that communicates to us uh, that in his being he is. Um, and that's, you know, one of the things that Voss in his commentary on the larger catechism, Moorcraft in his commentary on the larger catechism, keeps reminding us time and time again that that God is a spirit, a spirit, and also he is uh, a being. He is a, a person. Um, and so we don't just say that God is spirit because that means that uh, we would almost have to imply, I think is what Voss says, imply this disbelief in God's uh, individual nature, um, but that he actually gives us uh, this spirit. Uh, he gives us um through his word, this, this revelation, and this goes back to former catechism questions as well, this revelation of, of who he is as a spirit uh, in his being. And so one of the things that I think is always helpful because automatically either you have this movement into American evangelicalism where it's a, you know, a, a hovering spirit, Star Wars force. Uh, I feel them in my belly. No, that's just the Taco Bell you ate for lunch. Um, two, uh, it, or it could swing to this idea that, that if God is a spirit, then, then deism, right? He, he isn't active within the, the, the person or within his church, uh, as it's being built on this side of glory. And so, uh, just knowing that that God is a spirit and in himself a being, we have to be reminded that not only has he communicated to us in his word, but he is able to be communicated with uh, through prayer. And so, um, you know, one of the things I want to encourage our listeners to understand is that even when we be begin to, to speak about these heavy matters uh, of knowing what God is and who he is, that we can that we can actually have a meaningful uh, and satisfactory relationship, a friendship with God, because of who He is and what He is uh, in and of Himself. You know, one of the things I want to add here too is some of our listeners may be thinking, "You guys are you're applying something here. Uh, you, you're trying to bring 
an attribute of spirituality on your own. You're theologizing. And I just want to say, friends, this is from Jesus, okay? In the, in the context that we are informed about this, where Jesus says in John 4.24, God is spirit, and those who worship him in spirit and in truth, uh, you know, he, he is he's specifically correcting this idea, or, or really a misconception, um, that God is not landlocked to the house of worship in Jerusalem. He's likewise not landlocked to the mountain of the Samaritans. He himself is a person, and he can be worshipped, and he can be known, and he can reveal himself because he has. Not only that, he is in no way limited by the things that he's created, even the institutions that he set down for the regular or ordinary revelation of himself, specifically in the temple. And so this is something that comes from Christ. This is not a made-up theology. This is theology from the fountain, and that is the Lord, the enfleshed God. So just want to put that out there before anybody mistakes us for just being hobby pocket uh, philosophers playing theology. So, Well, and I think I think that's a really good point. I, this really, I think, ties into something that Sean was saying earlier, um, that when we say that God is spirit, we are saying something that really within that, there's much more theology, if you will, or beliefs that are contained. Um, and there's a lot of things that are excluded. You know, I would say that in the theological debates and discussions that happen today and have been going on for, you know, the past several centuries is a lot of the errors that we see come from trying to make God look more like us or, you know, I tell my congregation a lot of times, you know, sometimes people have this view of God that he is kind of like Superman, you know, he's still a person, he looks like us, but he's just a little bit better, you know, he's, he's a little bit cooler, he's got some attributes, I mean, he can fly, he can see through things, you know, he, and that uh, is obviously not correct, and it's excluded, but God being a spirit, he is different than us. There's an ontological difference between us and God. We are creatures who are made up of parts and we have passions and, um, you know, uh, we're complex beings. God is not. God is a spirit and he is a simple spirit, meaning that he's not composed of body parts or passions. And, um, and the fact that we say that God is a spirit, it really sets the table for the rest of the attributes that are listed here, because if God is not a spirit, then you can call into question whether or not he is in and of himself, infinite in being. Um, if God is not a spirit, if he is a um, something that is composed of parts, um, a complex being that, that actually has um, even physical attributes for that matter, um, then there's no way he can be in and of himself, infinite in being. Right. And and, it, and the same goes on elsewhere. But understanding that God is a spirit really helps you understand the rest of the attributes. And so this is a very important one. And we're not being nitpicky, uh, but it is foundational to what we believe. This is one of the things that separates us, as Sean said earlier, from like the Mormons, for example. Um, but I also think that it should, as the verse in John tells us, and as we've been talking about, this really ought to affect how we worship. Because even in worship, we can fall into the trap 
of wanting to make God just like us. Um, and, and I'm going to step on some toes here and, you know, sorry for those who are going to be upset with me, but I don't care. Um, and I would argue that because God is a spirit, therefore we should keep the second commandment in worship and we could, we should keep the second commandment in our lives. We should not make images of one who is spirit. It's a direct violation. But the problem is, and a lot of brothers are well-intentioned in doing this. They want to have something they can look at and relate to and show people and all teaching tools, whatever the case is. And I understand that desire, right? Um, but anytime you go to um, make an image of any of the three persons of the Trinity, ultimately what you do is you make a God in your image rather than you being made in God's image. I remember Legan Duncan saying one time, uh, we don't use uh, images because we are the image, right? We, we are made in his image. Therefore, we don't need to make images. And I think that's such a good point. And, and listen, this, this applies even um, to the second person of the Trinity, but ultimately all three persons here, um, we need to make, make sure that our worship and our practice and our beliefs conform to what God says about himself in Holy Scripture. One of the things that needs to be also, I think, paid some attention to is when we talk about God as a spirit, um, if we were then to apply images uh, to him regarding worship, what we're doing is an insufficient thing. Uh, we are we're offering him less than is what is deserved, less than is sufficient to explain or express his person. And so at the very best, all we're doing is appealing uh, to our own sensitive um, weaknesses, I suppose, uh, but but we're not actually offering God worship on his own terms, on his own person. Uh, think of it like this. It's, it's a husband who gets his wife the gift he decides she, uh, she would like rather than the thing that she has already told him delights her. Yes. Now, I, now, I don't know about you guys, but uh, your wife says she wants, you know, a diamond ring or some nice earrings and you go out and you get her a, you know, a payday bar. Uh, you've shot too low. And, and to be very honest, when we talk about the spiritual worship of God and then it being relegated to images or postures or acts uh, in worship uh, that are not derived from Scripture, that don't then show forth the immensity of his perfection in his spiritual person, we're doing even less than a payday bar. I mean, it's so much less. That's Yeah, that's a great analogy. Uh, hey, Spin, what do, you, what do you think about this? Do, don't you think this catechism question has some bearing on our understanding and our practice of the second commandment? That silence is fascinating. Interesting. We'll bear that in mind. Anyway, uh, go ahead, brothers. No, I was going to uh, say before I was rudely interrupted by Spin. Um, yeah, he does you that. Know, yeah, man. Uh, nonetheless, you know, I think that, you know, what Nick is calling weakness, I'm just going to outright call sinful inclination or, or, or sinful nature. Wants I'm to just add. a softy, Matt. Come on. 
I know, I know. We're all broken, uh, Matt. Come on. I'm intensely <laughs> Presbyterian when it comes to this subject, okay? Uh, you know, it's one of those things that, you know, not, not only uh, when it comes to the second commandment, and let's just beat on this for a minute because it's a long way to question 109. Not only are we not worshiping God as we ought, um, as he has revealed in his word, but we're forgetting uh, that God has given to us all that is necessary for life and salvation. Uh, you know, when when we're arguing that we need images for teaching tools or for discipling our children, um, we're, we're missing that God has told us that belief comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. Uh, and so blessed are the feet who carry the good news. Uh, the Christian faith is a, a faith that comes first to the ear. Um, and I know that our God is a gracious God and he, uh, rev- you know, is spiritually present within, uh, you know, the sacraments like communion where we get to see and taste and touch, um, and smell. But, but first it's a, a hearing gospel. Um, mm. and, and so, you know, not only when, when we begin to worship God, um, as he is forbidden uh, by the inclusion of, of images, we are not just going against what he has said, but we're saying what God has given us is not sufficient uh, for faith, salvation, for life, for even educating our people or uh, our children. And so we need to be very careful when we uh, start trying to butt up against uh, what it means to worship God in spirit and in truth, that we worship God in spirit because he is a spirit and we worship God in truth because this being, this God who is a person and personal uh, has revealed to us the truth in his own word. Um, And so I think worship is very important when we begin to think about what God is in and of himself. That's a great, great point, Matt. And uh, my mind was going in the same direction of, you know, God has given us images. God in his kindness has condescended to give us images, namely the in the new covenant, in the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. There's those visible representations of the gospel. There's those, there's those word pictures. There's the, uh, what the conventional wisdom says that, uh, says that Augustine may, may have been the first one to, to coin the phrase that, you know, in the sermon, the word is preached and in the sacraments is the word made visible. We have that. He's given it to us. We don't have to conjure it up some other uh, visual on our own when God has already given us the visual uh, that he has determined that our souls need. Uh, and right along with that, and I'll turn over to, to somebody else, but I just wanted to read this quote from Voss's commentary because he says it better than I could. Uh, he says, the reason back of the second commandment, so the reason standing behind the second commandment is doubtless the truth that God is pure spirit. And because God is a pure spirit, no material object or picture can avoid giving a false picture of God. And that's right in line uh, with what Derek was saying just a moment ago of every picture we might try to conjure up ultimately doesn't do justice to who God is. Uh, no picture can avoid giving a false idea of God. And we we would dare not give a false idea of God. Perish the thought, truly. You know, one of the things I want to say too, and if I may just speak from the context where I live in Europe, um, 
you know, American evangelicals, (laughs) American (laughs) evangelicals and reformed and Presbyterian people who want to rely upon images of Christ or high ceremony that in my mind is very much in the same vein uh, of images. Whenever they want to rely upon those things, history does not bear out the truth of their claim that it's helpful to worship, uh, that it builds up devotion, that it informs because scarcely could a person live in a more image drenched place than Europe. You can't go on a walking trail without seeing a crucifix. You can't go into any church without seeing loads of uh, images, whether it's a statue, whether it's a painting, whether it's uh, the uh, gold encrusted bones of a dead saint. Uh, they're everywhere. And the reality is, is that those things have actually not helped God's people. Uh, the health of the church in Europe is not great. And where those things are most prolific, the church is cold, dead, uh, on horrendous life support. And the churches were, that are most healthy, whether it's in uh, Europe or United States or around the world, uh, it's where uh, people are hearing the gospel proclaimed with clarity because we have a God who speaks. That's how God has revealed himself. He's sufficient in his self-disclosure uh, for the sake of the, the benefit and the worship of his people. And so I just want to put that out there. Not not saying, hey, I know better than you. I'm just saying uh, the evidence is opposite. Uh, if you want a healthy church, you're not going to get it with statues and, and photos. You're going to get it through through God-honoring biblical preaching. Yeah, I, that's such a good point. And uh, I would also just add this, that anytime we attempt to substitute what God has given us to worship, we are really selling ourselves short. Yes. And as much as I, uh, you know, understand and, and respect people of differing opinions, as Sean said earlier, God has given us images, right? He's given us the sacraments and, Perhaps, and this is less, I think, of a problem in this in Reformed churches, obviously, that take the Lord's Supper regularly. Um, but in the broader evangelical world, there are a lot of churches that don't ever take the Lord's Supper. They only take it, um, you know, a, a couple times a year. And I would just say that that's an issue that you are not worshiping with the gifts that God has given you. And you're really, um, you know, you're really uh, selling yourself short on, on the gifts that, that he's actually provided. That that's exactly right. I think and we need to move on to some of these other attributes and that's good. This is a, this is a good discussion, but I think we've all been saying this, it keeps coming back to the notion of we must not think ourselves to be wiser than God. I mean, that, that's what it comes down to. I remember, I had a lady, uh, a, a dear saint in Christ who she had come out of a Lutheran background. And so she was, you know, grappling with a Reformed versus Lutheran understanding of these things. And and so we were talking about this, these second commandment implications one day. And, and, I, and I, you know, this is what God has prohibited this, ma'am. God has prohibited this, ma'am. But what, but, but what if I think we need it? What if I think we need it? And, and that's when the light bulb went off for her, at least in this particular conversation. I said, but ma'am, you may think that we need it, but what if God has said the opposite? We must not think ourselves to be wiser than God. And then you could just see kind of the light bulb go off. Ah, okay. We, I'm not wiser than God. And if God has said I don't need it, then I must not need it. Okay. I think, I think that makes sense. I think I need to come to terms with that. And 
for these, I think that really that's that's the implication of the second commandment and, and our application of it that I think a lot of folks are are wrestling with. And we if we dig down deep enough, we have to we have to grapple with that implication. We must not think ourselves to be wiser than what the Lord Jesus Christ has commanded. Well, you know, Sean, that works perfectly into a segue into into the um, first characteristic uh, that in and of himself uh, he is an infinite being. Um, why why are we not wiser than God? Well, it's because he is the creator and we're the created. And so that little phrase, you can't bypass it, in and of himself means that no one has made God. You know, that's probably one of the most popular questions that I get from children within the church. Well, who who made God? And quite frankly, you, you just simply say, well, no one made God. God is the creator. If If someone had made God, we would be looking for a, another divine or another deity. And so God did not, uh, God is not created. Um, and yet he is the creator at the same time. And, and in and of himself, he begins to reveal to us, uh, as declared in his word, that he is infinite, literally without limits, uh, without boundaries. Um, and so, the way that the catechism reads and the way that Voss kind of uh, begins to unpack this catechism question, in what four respects is God declared to be infinite in his being, glory, blessedness, perfection? And so he is boundless, limitless in his being in and of that he is the creator, that he is not created. Uh, in his blessedness, he is the most blessed. Uh, and yet, at the same time, just as he is the creator and we're the created, he showers upon his people blessings and he is perfection. Um, he has no limits, even, you know, how mind boggling this is. He has no limits in his wisdom and his holiness. And it continues on through the catechism question. And so, um, as we think about infinite, as we think about glory, as we think about blessing or blessedness and perfection, what are we what are we thinking uh, as as this catechism continues on? Something that I, I kind of want to point out is is the language of in and of himself. If we're going to talk about infinity, that is a necessary precondition. If he isn't infinite of himself, he then has a limit. Because infinity is limitlessness, okay? It, it needs to be understood as a thing without boundaries or borders or, or, or insufficiency. And for anything to truly be infinite, it has to be on its own terms and out of its own sufficiency. Uh, to give some basic illustration of this, at General Assembly this year, I got to tag along with one of my ruling elders, a German guy, to a wonderful event put on by Moore in the PCA, a ruling elder dinner. And it was an all-you-can-eat rib fiesta there in Memphis. Just incredible. It was glorious, Perry McCall, glorious. Just incredible. And one would say, you know, uh, at least humanly speaking, it's all you can eat. There's infinity, at least in our perspective. They're not going to cut you off. But, but the reality is, is there is a cutoff. 
because there is a limited number of ribs just in general in the city of Memphis or in uh, the state of Tennessee or frankly in the world. There are, there's a definite number of hogs. They have a def- definite number of ribs. And for instance, if my ruling elder was just desperately hungry, he could eat us out of pig and home. But that's not the case when it comes to God. Uh, th- this is not some theoretical, um, you know, throwaway term. No, this is filled with meaning. This is filled uh, with an idea of God's personal sufficiency. That, that has to be a precondition of his infinity. Yeah, and I think um, this also ties in with, and I, really I think we're just dancing all around this one theological category, which is actus purus, right? God is pure act. Um, he um, is not, um, you know, he does not have any untapped potential, right? Um, it, it's not that he can increase uh, or decrease or anything like that. Um, he is pure actuality. He is pure. Um, and this is why the proof text they give is Exodus three fourteen, And God said unto Moses, I am that I am. And he said, thus shalt say, thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am hath sent me into you. And you look at that and you say, well, that's just his divine name. I remember somebody telling me, you know, you're reading something into the divine name and it's no, you're, you're not reading enough into the divine name. When God says, I am, you know, or I, you heard it translated. Um, I am that I am. I will be who I will be. I was, who I was whatever the, you know, however you want to do it. And that signifies not just his divine name, but it's a, an attribute, if you will, um, that uh, God is in and of himself, all blessed. He has all life in and of himself. You know, John chapter five, verse 26, um, God hath all life in himself. He's given to the son to uh, give life. And so uh, God has no untapped potential. Um, he is, pure act. And that's good news, actually, because if he has untapped potential, then, well, a lot of things could be called into question. But one, some of the other attributes that are about to be listed, such as the fact that God is unchangeable, but also we're not getting a lesser version of God. Right. And uh, people who live 300 years from now are not getting a better version of God than what we're getting. Right. And we don't have a God who uh, is growing in his abilities or understanding or whatever the case is. No, we get all of who God is as much as a, a finite creature can receive, obviously. Um, but we receive this God who is, um, well, he is maxed in the sense. Uh, and, and really, it's not even maxed in his capacity because there is no max. As Nick was just saying, there is no limit to this. And um and so anyways, um, I just wanted to say that, that that's very important and we need to to keep those classical categories um, on something like this. And, you know, whenever uh, the divines go ahead, Sean. Oh, just that's exactly right. Both of what you're saying, it, it Voss in his commentary says it baffles our minds. It does. It does baffle our minds because God is infinite. And we have we all we know as creatures, as humans, as mortals is finitude. We are we are so aware of our finitude and and we, we we can't grasp what is infinity and infinitude. All we know is limit. We I can go so long each day and I get tired. I need to go to sleep. I run out of I run out of energy. I, I work hard and I'm done. I'm spent. 
know, just like there's finite number of hogs and finite number of ribs in the world. I mean, I can go and go and go and go, but eventually I get hungry. I don't have limitless energy. I have to replenish myself. And this is all, this is the only category or frame of reference that I have is my own creaturely finitude. And so we can't get our heads around a a being who is infinite and is and it, it, there is no capacity there is no maximum for him because he is infinite so no wonder it's it's so difficult uh, for us to try and grasp this concept but thanks th- thanks to the lord ultimately for his kindness and in, in giving the the prowess and the intelligence to the westminster divines for phrasing this in such a succinct way to try to boil down if you will such a concept that we can understand but at the same time doing justice to god and speaking where scripture speaks and not not attempted to go further than how Scripture puts it. Go ahead, Nick. You know, isn't this such a sweet doctrine, though? I mean, we, we're talking about infinity, a thing that's so well beyond us. I mean, we, we really can't even touch the floor of it, but we feel our, our finiteness. You know, pastorally, you come near to a dying saint. They need to know that the God to whom they're going has no limit in his being. They're going to a God that in his eternal person will never die. Uh, there, there's so much comfort. You're going into the hands of a God who, who's trustworthy with your weakness and the small portion of who you are as his creature. It's wonderful. It's sweet. These are not just heady doctrines. They are that, but they are just soul-piercing. Uh, you go on into the glory of God. There again, you know, where do we feel the absolute lack of our own gloriousness? Well, it would be something along the lines of somebody racked by cancer in the throes of chemo, looking in the mirror, really struggling uh, with, with what they see. But the reality of a God who is absolutely infinite in the wonder of his glory. I mean, just to think on that, park your mind on just chasing after for a second this uncatchable reality of the infinite glory of God. It's more than looking into the sun. It's absolutely overwhelmingly magnificent. This is a doctrine that has to make you just say, praise be to God. That's so good. Um, Made me think of this quote from Aquinas, that God has in himself all the plentitude of perfection of all being. And that is a God that we cannot wrap our minds around you know i think it was c.s lewis and he said you know you can't wrap your mind around god because if you could then you'd be god right i mean this is a god who is who is not like us and that god is one who deserves and demands reverence and awe and worship and adoration yeah one of the one of the things that that Nick hit on so well is that, you know, we're we're constantly allowing our circumstances, especially when it comes to hard providences, to define what God is. Um, and we need to understand that God is always um, much bigger. He's always much bigger than anything that we can imagine or think or comprehend. And and, you know, one of the one of the things that I was asked uh, not long ago in our Tuesday morning uh, men's book study, we're, we're studying Thomas Watson's A Godly Man's Picture together. Mm-hmm. And it and one of those characteristics of the godly man is that God is a heavenly man. And he's going on and on and on about how uh, 
great of a city uh, we will possess when we receive heaven um, and, and all the glories of heaven. And I was talking about the, the everlasting worship of God. And, and one of the men just asked, he's like, well, why will we worship God forever? And it's because we'll always be plundering the depths of the riches of who God is, that even in heaven, we will continue to, to realize more and more uh, who God is and how he is infinite and personal, how he is perfect and blessed. Um, and and it's, it's quite an amazing kind of gospel-centered thing, I, I, for the lack of the better term, thing that the, the Westminster divines are doing, because in the way that they're speaking of this big God, this infinite God, this personal God, the the gospel's in your face, because one of the things that we need to realize is that because God is infinite and personal in every fact, and in every moment of the universe, we are face to face with this God and we have to do something with him. Um, Romans 1, all nature declares that a God exists, specially revealed in his Bible. He teaches us all things for life and, and faith. And so we have to come to terms with this infinitude, infinitudeness of, of God. And I know I botched that word because I'm speaking in Dylanese here, but uh Derek knew exactly what I'm talking about uh, there in Aliceville. I had but no trouble. I had no trouble. Yeah. <laughs> but but nonetheless, you know, I mean, it's this it's this gospel anchored truth that avoiding him is an impossibility. He is infinite. He is personal. He is everywhere. He is all glory, all perfection, all blessedness, and so uh, we have to. Uh, come to him by faith in Christ Jesus as he has revealed himself uh, to us. And so this has deep gospel impact for uh, us and our faith. You know, I, I really think there's something uh, for, for the Christian to, to just be incredibly impressed by the infinity of the blessedness of God. We think of blessedness. What do we think? You know, it's the beatitude language. It's the language of the first psalm. It's the the perfect happiness of God. Mm. It, it, that's so wonderful. He's infinite in that. And, and who among us can say that we even remotely get close to a complete happiness, much less an infinite happiness? You know, we, we think about the persons of the Godhead. We're not talking distinctly on the Trinity, but we're talking absolutely about the Trinity. Mm-hmm. The persons of the Godhead in their infinite happiness together forever. That's a God I want to have as my God. That's a God who is compelling. That's a God who not only is happy, but can express the blessings and the wonder of his happiness to me. Mm -hmm. And that's a God that I need because I have a world that militates against that. And I have a heart that desperately wants to lay in the slow of despond. And, and, and he, here we have a God who's, who's so much above that. He's, he's not a God overwhelmed in his anger, not a God overwhelmed uh, by righteous indignation. He, he's a God absolute and perfect and infinite in his delight 
And that's so wonderful. Mm. Well, that's, that's, that's good. That's that's not, go ahead, Derek. Yes. Sorry, I cut you off. I'm sorry. I just don't want to hear you anymore. Um, <laughs> way to pull a spin, Derek. Way to pull well, a see, spin. Well, see, yeah. that's all. That's all I was going to do. Is going to say that's a that's a marvelous thought that 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 Nick had. Spin. What do you think? Yeah, guys. Uh, yeah. <laughs> that was terrible, Derek. <laughs> that was a, uh, that was well, a terrible well, uh, spin, Weber. Kind of disliking. Uh, yeah, profound as always. Profound He's as too always, busy yeah. with with bouncy houses. Everybody, yeah. bouncy yeah. houses are where he is right now. That's right. And okay. if you're thinking, oh, Spin is at VBS. No, he just ha- loves bouncy houses and rents. He's them. in his backyard on a bouncy house. His kids aren't even home right now. He's just by yeah, himself. Right. Yeah, Spin actually doesn't have kids. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, thanks for those rentals. thoughts, Spin. That's profound as always. Let's actually hear something useful from Derek. Yeah, um, that's usually how it goes, isn't? Anyways, um, no, uh, I, it made me think what Nick was saying about a quote from Fred Sanders in his book, "The Deep Things of God." He says, "This inner life that God lives in the happy land of the Trinity, above all worlds, is a livelier life than any other life." Um, and I just love that—the happy land of the Trinity, uh, and a livelier life than other life. And and this ought to—that's a great friends. Line takes yeah that's a great line shout out to fred sanders um that this ought to take some pressure off of you because god is not dependent upon you god doesn't need you right god doesn't require something of you that he does not already have saint augustine right uh command what you will but give what you command right and he does do that so when you are in the slew of despond or or whatever, it's one of those things where God is not desperately waiting on you to get out because, um, you know, if you're in there, then that means he's in there and his happiness or his blessedness depends upon your feeling or where you're at in your life. No, God is pure act. He is livelier uh, than any other life. He is in the happy land of the Trinity and um, it's that kind of God that we can go to as a resource for our own, that we need for our own strength because we require from him, but he doesn't require from us. So take some pressure or, to the Christian out there. Take some pressure off yourself. God is not dependent upon you, but you're dependent upon him. And uh, that's really good news. And if you're dependent upon him, he's not short of change, right? I mean, th- there is so much comfort in that. I mean, I can depend on uh, persons within uh, the church, uh, within family, uh, within friendships, just as as we all, uh, all, all five of us, uh, even ex- accepting spin today, uh, we rely on each other. However, uh, we're, we're not going to be at every place. We're not going to even give good counsel all or sometimes even most of the time. But with God, uh, there's no doubt. There's no question. Uh, there, there is sufficiency and infinity to the uh, to the wonder of who he is. Um, you know, I, I won't go too deep into this. I think we're losing our time, but just to say this, this this next idea that's introduced to us of his infinity, the infinity of his perfection. Okay, that's absolutely central to the things we're going to dive into, I believe, in the next episode. Um, but but there's something just within that, the infinity of his perfections, if I can edit it t- slightly, uh, all of the parts of who he is are pure and infinite as as he is. Uh, that's just beyond even coming close to getting our heads around. But 
yeah, I'll kick that back to you guys. Well, actually, I think that that is a, a great place to to end this episode, Nick, because Bavink in his work, The Doctrine of God, says this about the perfection of, of our God. He says, God is everything God should be. Because he is perfect, every perfection in God becomes near to the believer. He cannot do without even one single one of them. He is satisfied with no other God than the only true God who has revealed himself in Christ. And he exalts all his virtues. The Christian life is filled with admiration, love, thanksgiving, and adoration. Not only because his God is a God of grace and love, but also because he is a God of holiness and righteous, not only because of his benevolent, but also because he is omnipotent. God is the sum total of all conceivable excellencies. He is the highest perfection, exalted above all shortcomings and limitations. Friends, we enjoyed uh, starting uh, this catechism question in the larger catechism question seven we hope that you'll join us for our next episode as we continue on in these characteristics of god as we explore what god is so until next time uh, this is uh, matt adams sean morse Derek bright and nick bullock and we miss you spinning weber even though we ridiculed you greatly throughout our episode see you later have been listening to Larger for Life, a podcast on the Westminster Larger Catechism, brought to you by the Blue Ridge Institute and Birmingham Theological Seminary. For more information about this podcast, please visit our website on Podbean at largerforlife.podbean.com, where you can subscribe to the show in the podcast platform of your choice and browse past episodes. You can also follow us on Twitter or Facebook. On Twitter, you can follow us at Larger for Life Podcast, and on Facebook, you can follow us at facebook.com slash largerforlife. Be sure to tune in next time and join us again at Larger for Life. Larger for Life.